0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Collier Bristow's US UK podcast, a series which sheds light on some of the most common aspects of US UK cross border planning. We're looking today at the rather cheery topic of will planning, something that no one wants to think about, uh, and yet which everyone should. Uh, I have the great pleasure today to be joined by Chris McElmore, a partner at McElmore Consulate LLP a boutique US law firm practicing here in London and specializing in tax trust and estate planning for Americans in the UK. Uh, Chris has been practicing in the UK now, he might correct me, for around 15 years on exactly the sorts of issues that arise in this field. And so I can think of no one more uh, suited or better qualified to uh, have this discussion with me today. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: Uh, I'm very well. Thanks, Aidan, for having me. You're exactly right. 15 years in London. And for all that time, I still haven't lost my very American accent.
0: But we' would be a, a, a tragedy to both the American and the British communities if you did. So I mentioned that we're going to be looking at will planning today, and it's going to touch on a number of different topics. We're going to be looking at why you should be thinking about will planning and what are the occasions that might give rise to you thinking about will planning. So, you know, trying to give you some tips. If you're thinking about uh, making a will and you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you're already on the first step. Uh, we're then going to look at the question of, how many wills someone should make. Sometimes for some clients, they should be thinking about making a will in both the US and the UK. Sometimes clients can get away with both, uh, with a will in one jurisdiction. And, and Chris and I will talk about some of the factors that go into thinking about that, um, that, that issue. Uh, we'll then think about the form of wills. And particularly for those, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of use as a shorthand, Americans living here in the UK, those who have both US and UK tax and non-tax issues to think about, what are the sorts of Uh, wills that someone will typically make and what are the main driving factors that determine what sort of will an individual makes. And then we'll, we'll at the end, go on to probably the meatiest and most interesting part of the discussion, which is thinking about, well, what are the tax efficiencies that could be uh, generated by an appropriate form of will planning? And why should someone, particularly an American living in the UK, for example, why should they think very carefully about their will planning and seek specialist advice from people such as those at macklemore to make sure their uh, will is as tax efficient in both jurisdictions? So, on that note uh, let's start thinking about will planning in its broadest sense chris if someone comes to you and says you know why should i think about making a will or when should i start thinking about making a will what are the kind of what are the kind of things you're saying to them right at the very beginning
1: well i think when people think about wills sometimes you know my mind often goes to tax because that's where you know, much of the work has to be done when you've got somebody who's a U.S. citizen living in the UK and potentially married to a non-American, um, as well. You know, m- my gears start turning thinking about tax, but but individuals, you know, who aren't preparing these documents day in day out, think about wills, really about documents that get rid of their assets and give them to the right people in the right form at the right time. And I think that's a really important thing, but. Another thing that I think is incredibly important about wills and is often the thing that gets people motivated to do them in the first place is, is things like appointment of guardians if you have minor children. That's something you can do outside of a will context, but is most commonly done with a will. So when somebody says to me, do I need a will? I think you know the first question is, do you have children? If the answer is yes, then I think the answer to the question is, yes, you absolutely need a will. Uh, not only to appoint the guardians, although I think that's massively important. Um, but also then to, to make sure that if you have assets, whether you know large or small, they, they go to your children or other beneficiaries uh, you know, in the right form. And so that starts people's you know minds turning. Um, but even if you don't have children or you, that your children are above the age of, of 18, so guardianship isn't an issue. Uh, you know, anytime you have assets split across two jurisdictions, the will is going to be an important document. Um, to start your state administration off on the right foot. Because, you know, in essence, if you don't have a will, you do have a will, but it's just the intestacy laws of the various jurisdictions where you have assets. You know, an intestacy is just how jurisdictions uh, push assets in the absence of wills, right? And it might be obvious to the spouse and then to the children. Um, But in some cases, that's not exactly how it will go. And if you've got assets across a number of jurisdictions, so here we're thinking U.S., U.K., uh, you know, doing intestacy in more than one place uh, is even worse. But I think it's also important to note that the U.S. isn't just one jurisdiction; it's fifty different jurisdictions. So in a you know a worst case scenario, even the, the most straightforward of American who's here in the U.K. might have property in the U.K. and a bank account in New York. And a family, uh, you know, a vacation home, even of a modest size, a cabin on the lake that they own a third interest in with their siblings in Vermont, uh, you know, and maybe, you know, some residual property in Florida from when they had a secondment there. You know, you're looking at four jurisdictions, no will to to speak of, um, and that has has what it from very simple means become a very difficult uh, situation to administer. So you're leaving executors and family members um, with with a lot to unravel yeah so i think,
0: I think so I, I i think it's it's peace of mind is really what you're bringing you are taking the steps at the beginning to uh to put your affairs in order so that at what is undoubtedly a tragic time you know, at your passing your heirs are you know they can be assured that you thought about what should happen first and you've taken the appropriate advice so that uh, everything can be administered in as efficient a way as possible not even as tax efficient a way as possible um exactly as you say leaving things up to the intestacy rules is to is to one is just a chance fate as to you know making sure that your wishes would otherwise accord with the intestacy rules um, but also you're then going through the process of trying to deal with separate pieces of administration in separate jurisdictions, whether, you know, internally in the US or or between two different countries. Um, And so there is never a bad time to be thinking about will planning. We sometimes say, you know, significant life events, you know, when someone is, when it has a child, when someone is married, particularly when someone is married, because certainly in the UK, marriage revokes all previous wills. Uh, When a parent passes, those are Uh, significant triggers that should make someone think about their own planning. But even still, every five to 10 years, if you have a will, uh, you shouldn't necessarily think, well, I'm afraid it's done and I don't need to think about it. Again, rules change, habits change. The child that you had that was six years old when you made your will 10 years ago is 16 years old now and in 10 years time will be 26 years old and your planning from an asset protection perspective from a taxation perspective is going to change over the course of those three uh, events let alone the tax uh, rules might have changed across those uh, those three events and it only takes the rules to change in either one jurisdiction or the other when you're thinking about cross-border planning for suddenly that plan to lose its efficiency Chris and I will uh, come on to discuss some of the ways in which for example the American regime, uh, has changed in the last 10 years quite significantly, not least because of the way in which the allowances have changed. And that can cause, you know, some people to fall into tax that weren't weren't previously and lots more people to fall outside of tax that were previously. And that will then cause you to think about uh, will planning in perhaps a slightly more dynamic sense. Um, or... To make you think about it in a slightly more relaxed sense, Uh, but it's individual to each client, and so we would always recommend. You know, the first step is having the discussion, is opening the line of communication, and we can tell you where you think you fall and 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 what it is we think you might like to think about doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a cliche to say uh, the best time to have prepared a will is is yesterday, and the next best time is today. But you know, with so many things, that's absolutely true. Clients will say. You know, well, I know the U.S. exemption is quite large, and we'll talk about this later, but it's 12 million U.S. dollars, so I'm not exposed to estate tax. Um, True, you know, the the exemption is large, but that, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it would be appropriate for your child to receive cash and assets outright or in trust. You know, sometimes we let the tax, and especially the generous exemption, Govern whether or not it's appropriate to make a will, but it's always appropriate uh, to make a will to dispose of your assets. And if they are modest, um, you you still need a will. Um, You know, it might not be the all singing, all dancing will that we we might do for for a different client, um, but it's such a cornerstone of family planning. And to think that um, you know you're leaving up decisions about you know how how your children receive assets. Um, I think when people don't like to consider these issues, but if you think the will is really only ever going to matter upon your demise, and so if you think about that in real terms, you've died. Potentially, your your spouse has predeceased you. You know, died contemporaneously. You know, what state will your children be in? You know, what will their personal circumstances be? Would it be appropriate to receive, you know, a load of cash outright? Access to pensions? You know, whatever those things are. Um, and, and are there people you would like to? To, to be, you know, there to guide them through that process and not necessarily even in a formal capacity, um, but people who should be available to help out who might get a mention in a letter of wishes, which, again, is something we can talk about later on. So you're doing so much more than just dealing with tax. You're doing so much more than just saying my watch goes, um, you know, to my son and I want $10,000 to go to the donkey sanctuary. Both of those things might be really meaningful, but the document is going to do a lot more work. Um, when it's actually called into action.
0: So that neatly uh, takes us on to I, I think the second point. Where you, you talk, Chris, about uh, uh, the document coming into action. Uh, sometimes it's more than one document. So there are certain circumstances where our clients may be thinking, and, and it's you know it's one of probably the most common questions I get from a, an American who approaches uh, my law firm first is you know I, I, I'm concerned I need to make. Two different wills. Um, I need to make a will in the UK for my UK assets. and I need to make a will in the US for my US assets. Um, the short answer to which is uh, it somewhat depends. And you know, peeking behind the veil, Chris and I have had several discussions, plenty of times, about you know what do you think about this client? Do you think this client should have one will? Do you think this client should have two wills? Because um, there are clients that are on the uh, you know the edge of the watershed of that discussion, and you could make an argument both ways from. From my perspective in the UK, you know, we have spoken on previous podcasts um, about the differing opinions to probate in the US and the UK. And certainly from a UK perspective, uh, the probate system is not one to be feared. It's one that everyone goes through and everyone sort of respects and understands. It's not that costly uh, and it's not that time-consuming. The probate process in the US is one that is fraught with complexity. I think it's fair to <laughs> summarize it in that way. Um, so we're thinking about probate when we're thinking really about two different wills we're not thinking about tax efficiency because the tax codes will respect wills from other jurisdictions um what we're really thinking about and certainly the way i characterize it to individuals who approach us is it, with two separate wills you can in effect start two different probate processes you can take the uk will and pass it through the uk probate and you can uh, process and take the us will and do the same there and so you can run two different probates Simultaneously, with one will, it does as a downside mean that you usually end up doing one probate process, taking your grant of probate in jurisdiction one, and taking it across to the second jurisdiction and trying to claim a grant of probate there, which makes that whole process slightly longer. However, with one with one will, it means you have one singular document that governs everything. You run the risk of one of the documents getting lost, one of the documents getting revoked, one of the documents getting overridden inadvertently. So it's no, uh, there's no one size fits all. Sometimes it is about tax planning, but sometimes it's just simply about that administration process. How does that, how does that work with your plans, Chris?
1: Well, the good thing is here, we're talking about estate planning in a US, UK setting, right? So we're not involving uh, other jurisdictions and certainly not involving any civil law jurisdictions, um, you know, on the continent, which could move the needle one way or the other. Absolutely, I think what what we need to realize is that U.S. probate law is, is just U.K. probate law that we stole in around the mid-1800s and then, you know, modestly revised over time. The, the foundation uh, is, is fundamentally the same. So it is completely possible to take a U.K. will and probate it in a U.S. court on the assumption that it was, you know, Signed with the necessary formalities, and vice versa. And I think it's just obvious that having one document would be easier uh, from a management perspective. But this really is one of those questions that will have a different answer, um, you know, for every individual client case. And I I know it sounds like a lawyerly thing to say uh, that it depends. But we'll give some certainty to other questions later. To this one, I think you can't give certainty. Um, Some people like the ease of having one document. They don't want to have to worry about inadvertently revoking a document uh, if they revise the UK will in the future accidentally revoking the US document. Anytime they want to make a change to the documents, revising two documents at the same time. You know, so there might be some some reasons that that motivate a client in that way. Another reason that you might have two documents is so that you can start probate contemporaneously in both jurisdictions. Um, so have the U.S. document and the U.K. document um, going through probate at the same time, which, as you say, you know, buys you um, a little bit of time so that the assets are getting administered and you don't have to wait for one country before you move to the other. But it also depends on the nature of the assets, right? Sometimes clients will say, uh, I need a U.S. will to cover my U.S. assets. But actually, the U.S. assets are a pension and a piece of property that they own jointly with their spouse. Well, jointly owned property is what we call a non-probate asset. It passes to the joint tenant automatically on death. So even if the will said, I give all my interest in our property in Vermont to Aiden Grant, it, it wouldn't pass to you because it would go to the joint tenant. Uh, pensions and most you know, retirement accounts are also non-probate assets. They pass by way of beneficiary designation. So it might be that you don't even have any assets in the US or the UK, You know, one country or the other, it's going to pass pursuant to a will, which again speaks in favor of having just the one document. So I appreciate that that's not a clear answer, but I, I, there isn't a clear answer that will cut across all circumstances, uh, and it could change. My, my my slight preference is to have one document because it makes getting the tax correct uh, a bit easier than trying to do it across two documents. But depending on the client circumstances, I can easily be moved, and we're very happy to take the approach really in either direction
0: i mean i i would sort of only finish that with with two other points one is to to your question your point chris about the one document and the taxation uh, just to sort of reassure anyone that's that's listening to this there's not necessarily any specific cost saving to doing either one will or two wills because in a properly cross border context, even if there are two separate documents, that's not to say that Chris is drafting one document and I'm drafting the other, because there can still be tax consequences that flow from each document in the other jurisdiction. And so you still want your lawyers to each look at both documents. The effect is really as a drafting exercise, whether you try and combine those two documents into one single document, or whether you separate out the complexity and have two separate threads running alongside each other at the same time. So it really does depend on each circumstance. Um, When it comes to, well, this is fine, but neither of these two lawyers has ever has actually given me an answer to a question I can, at least a question I can start with, plus a challenge, you might think. Um, the general position I start with, it's like, if we're doing one jurisdiction, then of course, it, the answer is, in which jurisdiction? That's sort of the next question. I, I generally start with, where are you right now? Where are your inheriting heirs? And where are most of the assets? Or rather, where is most of the tax going to fall? Where should the from a, from which jurisdictions tax rules is the estate planning being governed? And that's the, uh, the the answer to those three questions is what tends to drive with one will, in which jurisdiction does that will sit? So if you are an American citizen living in the UK, you are a deemed UK domiciliary, your UK home is in the UK, your uh, kids are in the UK, then the answer is going to be if it's one will, it's going to be a will based in the UK, realistically, unless you are worth significant sums of money where you know U.S. taxation is a, a real threat because your combined wealth is over $12 million or $24 million if you're a married couple, both of whom are American, in which case we might be reverting back to the uh, the U.S. will at the same time. By comparison, if you're one of Chris's clients based in, say, New York, um, and you happen to have a you know, a UK bank account, I'm going to be saying, well, I think it should probably start in the U.S., And if your assets grow sufficiently large where they requires the presence for a separate UK will, then we'll do a second will in the UK. But it always usually starts from one jurisdiction or the other and then grows across uh, as and when the time calls for it.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing to, to bear in mind when people say, where should my will be? Is that if we think about really how testamentary law works in both countries, if I were to sit down right now and write on a blank piece of paper, you know, when I die, I want everything to go to these two charities, the remainder to my spouse and then my kids, and I signed it in my hand in front of two witnesses, and I meet the other testamentary formalities, i.e. I can speak English, I'm over the age of 18, and I'm compass mantis, that, that would be a valid testamentary document in the state of New York. Uh, that would, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, be a valid testamentary document in the United Kingdom. So... But it doesn't, the document doesn't say anything about governing law. It says, you know, give my, my painting, uh, you know, to my cousin. But there's no reference to New York, there's no reference to the UK, et cetera. So at its very base, a will isn't necessarily even jurisdictionally specific. Now, obviously, the documents we're drafting are more complex than that. But sometimes the question, where is my will based, doesn't really have an answer. I think the other thing to think about is when sometimes people will come and say, I need two wills. Um, that might be true, but that's really a solution looking for a problem. You would never, if you are, um, you know, engaging in a you know, a contract issue and you need a contract drawn up um, you know, for a business or an enterprise you're undertaking, you would never come to the table and say, I need a three page long document. you know, you might get a three page long document. But that's just an outcome that will be a consequence of your circumstances. The same thing is true with your wills. You might get two wills. You might get one. It won't be because you came to the table asking for two. It will come because that is, you know, on balance, the right outcome based on your assets, based on your personal values, and based on what you're trying to achieve.
0: Uh, If anyone wants to, you know, is is feeling particularly uh, an anorak and wants to go away and and, and learn more about the validity of UK wills, um, we have a a wealth of case law um, that dates back to the early 1800s on what counts as valid wills, because the the Wills Act is is still the the act of Parliament that we base our will validity on here, and that was from the uh, 1830s. We've got lots of history of this, Uh, and the most famous case that you will hear lots of people talk about is the case where an individual wrote their will on the side of an egg. Um, I believe they still have the egg in the probate registry in the UK. It was a valid document. The fact that they are written on an egg doesn't mean that it wasn't valid. So, yes, you're right. I mean, I'm not recommending people create wills on the side of eggs. Um, But Chris is right. Um, The requirements needn't be complicated. And indeed, it is the case. And I'm sure the legal industry in both jurisdictions would say that generally speaking, we wish more people would have wills and don't be put off making a will because you think it's complex and difficult. There are good high street vendors you can go to and grab a will off of the shelf and sign it. And that afternoon, you have a will in place. Fantastic. It might not be as tax efficient. It might not do all the things that you want it to do. But it will at least be effective, and that is better than nothing. I think we would generally agree on that. However, if you're listening to this podcast or you found this podcast somehow, the odds are you probably want something a little more sophisticated than that. So, by all means, you know, make the W. H. Smith stopgap if you want. Um, but uh, we would still recommend that you you come and speak to us. Other vendors of high street wheels are also available. Um, When we come back, I'm going to pick up the second two points with Chris uh, for our discussion today, firstly, on what the driving factors are that decide what form of will our clients make, and secondly, thinking about tax efficiency. Uh, So join us uh, next time.